seated. Good afternoon, Judge. Uh, Ryan Bennett of Kirkland and Ellis on behalf of the debtors. Um, I'm here today with my colleagues, Ms. Fogelberg, Mr. Jacobson, Mr. Pavlovich, and our trial partner, Mr. Slade. Uh, it's great to be back before you, Judge. Uh, thank you first for uh, accommodating our filing and scheduling requests. Um, thanks also to the Office of the United States Trustee for reviewing our papers and providing helpful comments beforehand. Um, uh, we're we're uh, with us in the courtroom today is Mr. John Boken of Alex Partners. He's our interim CEO uh, and our first day declarant. Um, the, uh, it, as indicated in our papers, um, you know, the, while this is the first day of the bankruptcy case or the first day hearing in the bankruptcy case, it's not the first day in the debtor's restructuring uh, process. Since March uh, 23rd, the debtors have been, uh, March 23, the debtors have been engaged in a, uh, uh, a sale process uh, and been working with Houlihan Loki, our proposed investment banker, and a steering committee of our lenders uh, to maximize value. Uh, this also included uh, pre-petition bridge financing that was provided by uh, a group of our lenders to provide the debtors uh, liquidity through a trough that we experienced earlier this year so that we continue operating in the ordinary course. Uh, that liquidity that was provided um, along with uh, cash flow from operations is uh, the basis for the cash collateral that we have and the ability to fund our operations uh, consistent with past practices. Um, our majority lenders have uh, uh, provided their consent for that cash collateral use and their support for our filing. And we intend to deploy a toggle structure with respect to this bankruptcy case, um, running a sale process with a 20, $275 million floor for a third-party cash bid or bids or a potential credit bid, um, or if no such bids are received or acceptable to the lenders, an equitization of the lender's debt position. Um, in the coming weeks, the debtors intend to file a Chapter 11 plan reflecting that toggle structure. Uh, in the case of a third-party credit bid, that plan will be a liquidating Chapter 11 plan. Um, and. Uh, and in the case of a, uh, we toggle to an equitization, the plan will be a Chapter 11 reorganization plan. Uh, but time is of the essence, Judge. We are projected to hit a liquidity wall in January uh, when the company's revenue cycle ends and shifts to a uh, net spending type structure. Uh, and with no present dip commitment, the, the debtors must move swiftly through the sale process. Uh, likewise, a confirmation schedule um, on that toggle plan uh, will map on to the, uh, to the sale process that we, uh, that we propose. Um, Judge, we've uh, prepared a brief slide deck uh, as an introduction um, to the company, uh, or introduction to the court of the company and uh, the process that, uh, that we've been, that's been playing out and the proposed path forward. And if Your Honor would allow, I um, can walk the court through that briefly. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not going to go word for word on the slides. We, we've actually printed some hard copies for the courtroom so folks can have as a reference guide, um, you know, easy, easy to review. Um, here's our, our roadmap for the presentation. Um, Your Honor, I'm not sure if you're aware but, um, of our products, but uh, the, uh, we are a market leader in uh, stone fruit production. You know, these are nectarines, uh, apricots, uh, um, peaches, most, and plums, and various varietals of the two. Um, the, uh, where you can find our products, uh, you know, in retail establishments throughout the country, uh, we produce on a scale that, uh, I think is, is unsurpassed in North America, 
uh, in terms of the n- number of, uh, of products that we, uh, that we grow and package and sell. Um, as I discussed earlier, this is a, p- a plan for our bankruptcy case um, with a sale transaction, a plan transaction toggle. Uh, the, we have a, our lenders have gotten together and aligned on a, with a lender support agreement. The debtors are not a party to that agreement, but, um, but the debtors are um, assured that their lenders are working together, whereas uh, in certain circumstances, lenders might not be. Here we are speaking with one body, and I believe they'll be addressing the court in some context uh, later, this, later this afternoon. Um, the, uh, here's our business line. You can you know, find us uh, you know, in all these establishments throughout the country. Costco um, was there the other day and was pleased to see the, not just that we were buying them, but the woman behind me in line was buying them, so it was promising. Um, the, uh, we're, uh, so, yeah, throughout the country, uh, here's, uh, here's how our market position uh, maps out. Uh, as you can see, despite popular opinion uh, or belief, Georgia is not the leading producer of peaches in the United States. Uh, it's not even second. Uh, South Carolina is second, uh, tracking our substantial contribution to, uh, to the production in the great state of California. Well, Delaware is the peach state. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You'll have to teach me why that is, but uh, but yeah. <laughs> Got to learn your Delaware history. I do, I do. Uh, here's a little corporate history. Um, like any uh, company of this scale, right? It is a combination of merger and growth and development um, over you know many decades, uh, where the the um, the farming company Grow and Farming merged with the packing company uh, Wawona Packing. And uh, and then you know developed and expanded uh, throughout the uh, the twentieth century and twenty first century to develop the, to yield the the vertically integrated company that we that we have now. Um, here's an example. Here's a demonstrative relative to our vertical integrations. Right, we have the farming, um, and then the packing, and then the supply chain. Right, which gets us to uh, to our um, our customers, which are the large retail establishments that uh, that market to consumers. <clears throat> Uh, we've got a number of facilities that play into that supply chain and packing and production uh, with cold storage at each of them, um, you know, located throughout uh, the Valley in California. Uh, there's, of course, uh, people behind all of this. This is our board of managers um, uh, made up of folks who have been in the agriculture industry for a long time, and uh, they've been very um, focused on this process, very involved, monthly or weekly board meetings, weekly board updates, uh, sometimes more often. Um, you know, as we as we've navigated this process with our lenders and dealt with the various cash flow issues that the companies in, encountered, uh, we have established a special committee. Um, Aaron Schwartz is an independent director who was added to the board um, earlier this year, and uh, and that committee is made up of of Aaron and uh, Mr. Boken uh, to address and handle restructuring related um, considerations and transactions. Um, the debtors' professionals, which you, uh, applications will have been filed and um, and will be filed, um, are, are in front of you there, Judge, and uh, and then of course our Steerco. Uh, again, I think they're all represented here, or most of them are represented in this room, and these are made up of um, the lenders who are uh, most of the lenders who are in uh, the the two different the three different facilities that the debtors have the property, um, Propco facility, we'll call it the. Opco facility and uh, and then the bridge facility that provided us with the liquidity earlier this year and then they are uh, jointly represented by uh, FTI Consulting as well. <clears throat> Our capital structure again it's uh, it's set up in um, you know what you typically see in um, in large agricultural um, operations like this where there's an operating company 
silo and a property company silo. And the property company then leases the property to OPCO. OPCO generates the revenue, sends the, um, the obligations or the payments back to, uh, to PropCo relative to the, you know, under the terms of that lease. And um, the, uh, our capital structure, um, as we've detailed in the papers, um, you know, is made up of, of the three facilities. Well, really, the, yeah, the, the, um, the, yeah, the, the PropCo facility, the two OPCO components, and then the bridge facility to total $678 million approximately. Um, corporate structure, um, you know, here's, here's how it's basically been rolled together uh, in connection with the various mergers over, over the years with the, um, if I can show you, we've got the OPCO and PropCo on the, uh, on the far left um, relative to the, uh, the two different silos. <clears throat> so the borrower, um, the borrower, obligor, uh, guarantor, situation maps out. Um, you know, we talked about this in our papers, why are we here? Um, there are several circumstances operationally that we encountered uh, a large recall in August of 2020 related to Salmonella. Um, the debtors were not um, identified to be responsible for any of that Salmonella outbreak, but nevertheless, out of an abundance of caution, uh, we complied and issued the recall ourselves and brought back all the peaches that we distributed over a two-month period, which was a substantial amount of product. Um, during during a, a, an important revenue cycle for us, there were of course the wildfires everyone's familiar with that impacted California in 2020. Um, COVID-19, of course, um, impacted operations like most companies during that time. And then you've had varying you know degrees of drought and flooding um, that have um, that have plagued that part of California um, throughout throughout the past few years. Um, the uh, and then then there's just also been operational challenges uh, to the to the company. Pricing issues, while people are buying peaches, right, they not, maybe aren't purchasing them at a price, right, that really covers as much of our costs as, um, as, as we would uh, prefer. And then uh, labor market challenges in California. We've got a cyclical labor um, situation where uh, labor, they come in, the seasonal laborers come in to service the property, and so we need them, but sometimes they're not there. It's hard to get to them or hard to pay the wages relative to them because California tends to be a very wage or labor-friendly state and uh, makes it very competitive when it comes to, uh, to, cost, uh, to the labor costs. And then SunWest lease, we did an add-on of a significant amount of acreage uh, last year, and, um, and, the, uh, and then that add-on required a significant amount of capital improvement to bring that property up to the level of Prima Warna standards uh, with respect to the, the trees and the, uh, the irrigation and the fertilization. And so there was a lot of capex put into that, so that hit our, um, our balance sheet significantly as well. Um, now, um, you know, one of the things, Judge, as I mentioned, this is not the, um, well, it's the first day hearing. It's not the first day of our process, and we've been running that uh, for quite a while. And you can see from this timeline, um, you know, the, uh, the process that's been run by uh, Julian Loki with the, the restructuring committee supervision. Uh, and it, at this point, it's been determined in consultation with the lender group that uh, given the, the company's horizon in terms of its, the amount of cash collateral it has on hand available to it to initiate the bankruptcy case, um, run a process, um, albeit, you know, relatively abridged, but nevertheless enough that we believe will flush out um, the market and uh, and get get it to us get us to a sale transaction that uh, that yields maximum value. <clears throat> so path forward, uh, you know, as I mentioned, times of the essence. We need to move quickly. Um, we are you know just ending our revenue generating P 
period of of the season where and, and we have pooled a, a, a you know considerable amount of cash, um, but we will begin having to um, net spend uh, as early as January, and uh, and by then going to be in a situation where we're, we're running out of cash and we're either going to need to close a sale, close an acquisition, or find alternative credit uh, to continue. But ideally, it's, um, it's, the, it's one of the two uh, former. Uh, the the proposed sale process we have, um, you know, we're working out, but um, we filed the bidding procedures motion. I believe that's set for a hearing. Maybe we haven't set it yet, but we'll get to that this, this afternoon if, you're, if Your Honor would oblige. The, uh, we'll set a, a bidding procedures hearing, and, um, and then we've got various dates. Understanding we don't have an order from Your Honor yet on the bidding procedures, but we're going to operate under a, under a proposed order and you know, under, a, under the, the schedule we propose and you know, take any feedback from Your Honor as we, as we move ahead there. But, again, because we've run this process effectively since March, um, we, you know, we're, we're relatively confident that you know, we're going to be able to identify the purchasers or, or purchaser during this you know, relatively short window that we have, given that you know, Hulahan has been out there um, you know, flogging the company for so long. And, uh, and, Your Honor, I, um, I don't, do not have any further comments on this. I can answer any of your questions, Judge, or yield to my colleagues who will, uh, you know, come up and, um, oops, sorry, oh, tried, uh, who, who can come up and, uh, and, and then uh, provide. I think Mr. Jacobson is going to come up and talk about cash collateral. And then, actually, before I do that, Mr. Zatz from White and Case was going to come up and make a comment on behalf of the lender group. Okay. Thank you, Judge. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Andrew Zatz from White and Case. On behalf of Bank as the pre-petition bridge agent. Uh, we would like to thank the court for accommodating the debtors today, given the Friday filing and the amount of papers that have been filed. Debtors have accurately described the pre-petition capital structure, which includes three pre-petition secured facilities, a bridge facility, which is secured by substantially all the debtors' assets, an OPCO facility, which is secured by assets at the OPCO entities, and a PropCo facility, which is secured by the company's real estate and equity in PropCo, which is the real estate-owning entity. Robobank is agent under the bridge facility. RBC is agent under the OPCO facility. And Wilmington Trust is agent under the PropCo facility. The bridge facility was put in place in April of this year and was used to provide the company with necessary liquidity to pay operating expenses and fund the marketing process for the sale of the company. Robobank is a member of a steering committee of lenders across all three facilities. The members of that steering committee are Robobank, RBC, MetLife, Compeer, and Ag Country. We represent Robo, Robobank, RBC is represented by Sidley Austin, MetLife is represented by Morgan Lewis, and Compeer and Ag Country are represented by Moore and Van Allen, and all of the party's advisors are in the courtroom today. The steering committee was formed early this year when the company approached the lenders and explained it was facing a liquidity crunch. Since then, the Steerco has been in close conversations with the debtors and their advisors, and these conversations ultimately led to the company's out-of-court marketing process and the bridge facility. 
Ultimately, when the debtor's out-of-court marketing process did not result in an actionable binding offer, the conversations turned to the filing of these Chapter 11 cases. The process has been open and collaborative, and we are pleased to announce that the required lenders across all three facilities are supportive of the relief requested today, in particular the use of cash collateral, which is of crucial importance to the success of these Chapter 11 cases. Required lenders are also supportive of the debtor's bidding procedures motion, which is not before the court today, but will hopefully be before the court in short order. These Chapter 11 cases are the result of a long and involved pre-petition relationship between the company and its lenders. Debtors' lenders have been supportive of the company at every turn, as evidenced by their willingness to provide up to $100 million of new capital pursuant to the bridge facility and to shut off mandatory repayment requirements under the bridge facility during these cases in order to conserve cash. It has always been the lender's hope and desire to facilitate the sale of the company to a third-party buyer for an acceptable price. The company has had a multiple round and extremely far-reaching and comprehensive marketing process. That process yielded a significant amount of interest and we remain hopeful that a third-party sale will materialize and be actionable in these Chapter 11 cases. We want to make very clear that the lenders view these cases as the end of that marketing process. A bid deadline has not yet been set, but has been requested for November 17th. The purpose of this bid deadline from the perspective of the lenders is to create a last opportunity for any third party to present their best offer, absent which the lenders will swiftly pivot to an equitization. The lenders are fully prepared to support the debtors and move quickly through these Chapter 11 cases, which is evidenced by the lender support agreement attached to the debtors' first day declaration at docket number 13, which lays out the arrangement between the OPCO and PROPCO and bridge lenders on the allocation of proceeds based on a third party sale and an agreement on a lender credit bid for the company if necessary. As such, the lenders are fully aligned on an end game to these cases, regardless of how the sale process plays out. We are confident that this company will be positioned to close on a sale or equitization transaction by the end of the year. We will continue to work with the debtors to that end, which has been a very amicable and productive process so far. I will close by reiterating our support for the approval of the debtors' requested relief today. Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Rob Jacobson of Kirkland & Ellis on behalf of the debtors. Um, Your Honor, I'd like to start um, by we, we filed uh, John Bilkin's first day declaration, um, and I would like to start by moving that into evidence if, if that would be all right. Uh, Mr. Bilkin is in the courtroom with us today um, and available to answer any questions, um, but otherwise we would ask uh, to admit his declaration. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, so I, I will begin today's um, agenda with um, the cash collateral motion. Uh, that was filed at docket number 14, and that is item number 13 on the agenda. Prior to the hearing, we filed a revised interim order that reflects additional comments that we received from the United States trustee. That revised order can be found at docket number 65. Um, I do have a uh, hard copy, Your Honor, of the red line, um, if that would be helpful and you would like a copy. Um, yep. Okay. May I approach? You may. Thank you. 
Your Honor, I'm pleased to report that we are here before you today with an agreed interim order uh, with the United States trustee and our pre-petition secured lenders. And I want to just take a brief moment to thank uh, Ms. Sierra Fox of the United States Trustee's Office um, and all the councils to our lender group uh, for working with us collaboratively over this past weekend um, and, and uh, over the course of today um, on the revised order. Uh, to echo Mr. Bennett's opening presentation, the debtors are before your honor to achieve either a value maximizing sale transaction or if a sale transaction proves not to be achievable to confirm a chapter 11 plan um, that would result in a change of ownership to the debtors secured lenders. From the get go, I want to note that the debtors have consensus um, from our entire lender group on our contemplated sale process and related sale timeline. Uh, Mr. Zatz alluded to that earlier. And uh, the consensual use of cash collateral is a, is a very important step toward achieving that goal. As of the petition date, the debtors have approximately 26.9 million in cash on the balance sheet. Based on the analysis and forecasting performed by the debtors advisors and management, the debtors anticipate that cash on hand and cash collections from the debtors 2023 harvest season will be sufficient to fund all payments contemplated by the debtors first day motions um, and the debtors post petition operating and restructuring related costs, as well as to achieve the debtors marketing and sale process um, on a timeline that Mr. Bennett set out in his presentation. Um, I do want to note that the, the budget includes cash expenditures to maintain all of our owned and leased land consistent with past practices. A notable feature of the interim order is that we have attached a nine week budget rather than the standard 13 week budget. The pre-petition secured parties preferred that the company focus in the first instance on a budget that carries through the contemplated sale timeline. So that is why our budget is, is nine weeks through December 15th. But to be clear, the debtors believe that they will have sufficient cash on hand all the way through January of 2024. Um, but we have included the nine week budget in this interim order um, at the request of our pre-petition secured parties. As part of our agreement uh, for the consensual use of cash collateral, the interim order includes a standard um, and customary adequate protection package um, for our pre-petition secured parties. The adequate protection package includes adequate protection liens and adequate protection super priority, super priority claims to the extent of any diminution in value. Um, adequate protection payments in an amount equal to all pre-petition and post-petition accrued and unpaid interest on account of the pre-petition new money bridge loans. Standard and customary financial reporting and payment of the reasonable and documented fees and expenses of the pre-petition agents and the members of the steering committee and their professionals. In the proposed order, we've also agreed to certain uh, case milestones, Your Honor. Um, including obtaining a bidding procedures order by day 28 of these chapter 11 cases, obtaining a final cash collateral order by day 35 of these chapter 11 cases, and complying with any deadlines described in the bidding procedures order once your honor has had a chance to approve it. I would also note for the court that many of the standard protections afforded lenders, such as the 506C waiver um, and equities of the case waiver under section 552B have been pushed only to the final order so we're not asking for approval of those items today. As set forth in our pleadings, the debtor have, debtors have an immediate need for cash or to access cash on hand and cash flow from operations to fund uh, their working capital needs, capital expenditures um, for other general corporate purposes and for the administrative expenses of these chapter 11 cases. 
The ability to satisfy these expenses as and when due is necessary for the debtor's continued operation of their businesses during the pendency of these Chapter 11 cases and the successful implementation of our restructuring process. The debtors have the consent of the pre-petition secured parties to use cash collateral, and we believe that the adequate protection set forth in the interim order is fair and reasonable um, and reflects the debtor's prudent business judgment, or an exercise of the debtor's prudent business judgment. As I mentioned at the outset, the proposed order is in agreed form with the United States Trustee's Office and the pre-petition secured parties. There have been no objections filed with respect to the cash collateral motion. Um, Your Honor, I'm very happy to answer any questions that you may have. And otherwise, I'd respectfully request entry of the of the order. Let me ask if anyone would like to be heard with respect to the use of cash collateral. Okay, I do have some questions um, and some comments with respect to the um, form of order, and it might be um, prudent to just flip through it. Okay. But let me ask you this. I'm assuming that the um, that the budget doesn't inc- does not include the fees and expenses of the lenders and their respective counsels, agent, etc. Um, I, I believe that's correct. Oh, it does. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Okay. And where is that reflected? Uh, I, ask, I ask in this case because there's a significant number of firms that are representing the various agent, the two, three, three agents and the various lenders. Um, Your Honor, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the line item that would reflect those amounts should be um, other restructuring fees, but um, if, if I'm misunderstanding that. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to a confirmation on where that is. Okay. Okay. And I have not looked through changes that were made, so I'll do that at the same time. And Your Honor, I'm happy to walk you through the red line if that would be helpful, Um, but otherwise, we can let you review. Two items I don't want to forget to address. Mm -hmm. When we get to them, one is what I call the LLC issue. Uh, which unless that's been changed um, in the red line is still extant in the order. And second, it appeared that from the termination events that the debtor was paying, um, making payments under the pre-petition credit documents, which I assumed was not the case except for the bridge loan, but that's not what it appears to be in the order. So I don't want to forget to ask about that as well. Okay. But I'm assuming that's not the case. Um, let me address um, the first question about the LLC issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe we've taken care of that in the red line. 
Um, let me find the appropriate. I'm starting with the easier one that I know off the top of my head, Your Honor. Paragraph 29. It's, that's paragraph 29 of the red line, Your Honor. take a look at the provision because I, I'm not sure that will do it. Okay. Um, okay, let's, let's walk through then. Okay. I am, I'm ready when you are, Your Honor. Um, Definition of pre-petition secured parties, which I had trouble finding, and then I, my clerk found it for me in Annex supposed to be in all secured parties, but in Annex 4 it says it means the pre-petition Popco secured parties and the pre-petition Opco secured parties, which did not include the bridge parties. So I'm assuming that because this was talking about adequate protection, that it was extending to the bridge members as well. Yes, it is. That that might have just been a drafting mistake, but it should cover the bridge as well. Okay. Um, okay. And I could be, I could have it wrong because I didn't have that much time with this document, and I haven't lived it as you guys have. But um, there were definitions in various places in the motion some in the order, some in an annex with definitions. It was um, sometimes hard to trace it through and they didn't necessarily cross-reference each other. So um, I did my best. Um, 
the um, next little comment I have again in paragraph um, J. And I'll try to look at the most recent, which is the red line. Um, Yeah, on page eight at the bottom mm -hmm. before the provided, it says that the, based on the motion and the record, the use of the pre-petition collateral, the proposed adequate protection arrangements and the use of the collateral are fair and reasonable, reflect the debtor's prudent exercise of business judgment. Okay and constitute reasonably equivalent value and fair consideration for the pre-petition agents and the pre-petition secured parties. Why is that language appropriate? Um, Your Honor, I, I, I think it's included in here. Um, um, you know, to, to which I think what it's trying to say is that the adequate protection being provided to the secured parties is this is the the deal the consideration for them allowing us uh, for them consenting to the use of cash collateral, um, uh, and I believe what we're what we're simply trying to express here is that that consideration is reasonable, um, and and fair and equivalent value. Well, I don't know. Fair consideration. It sounds more like fraudulent conveyance language. And I'm not making any decisions on whether there will be any diminution, whether they're entitled to adequate assurance or not, ultimately, if this were ever, God forbid, tried. Um, but um, so I, I think that language is not appropriate. I'm not making a finding that it's reasonably equivalent value and fair consideration because I don't see how I can make that. It's what's been offered. It's reflects the debtor's prudent exercise of its business judgment. I don't have a problem with that. But this sounds more like an ultimate finding that unless someone can explain it to me at the get-go, I'm, um, I'm not comfortable with. There, later on, there is an acknowledgment um, Nothing in this order is construed as an acknowledgement by the pre-petition secured parties that this is adequate protection. Right. They're not agreeing that this is adequate protection, and I'm not finding that they're actually entitled to it. So it's the same. So so that language uh, concerns me. Okay, Your Honor, from I think from the debtor's perspective, you know, we're okay adjusting that language or, or removing it, but I'll defer to um, the lenders if that's okay. I'm getting 
Again, it had none, so I think we're okay to, to remove that. Okay. The next comment is paragraph L on page, now page 10. And I see the language that's been added after the final order in previous paragraphs. I think that's appropriate. Um, no liability to third parties. This is forward-looking. Part of it is forward-looking. Okay. Um, it wants me to find that in permitting the debtors to use cash collateral, that might be okay, um, that the secured parties are not in control, not be deemed to be in control, but in accepting the initial budget and future approved budget and taking any actions permitted by this interim order, that's all future looking. And if, for example, we ever end up in a situation where the lenders foreclose or exercise their remedies, I can't tell you or make a finding that they aren't to be deemed in control of the debtor's operations once they, certainly once they take remedial action. So, I have a question on that. Um, thank you, Your Honor. Um, likewise, I, I think we're okay to remove, move, remove that language um, and, you know, make this one easy. We can just take that out. Can I make a comment on that? Of course. Mr. Jacobson, the language, L, U, or 6, unless the senior is nice to be back in Delaware. I would just note in that paragraph, this is, as you know, fairly standard language, and typically uh, we have the same when we have environmental concerns. That's sort of where, you know, the owner-operator type language is coming from. Um, I would note that this is qualified by any actions permitted by this interim order. Clearly, we're not, you know, allowing for any sort of future foreclosure or anything like that. I think we're just saying as long as the company is operating pursuant to a budget and whatever is comp contemplated by the budget, those actions permitted by this order do not um, constitute control. I'm okay with that concept, but I think you could read this paragraph to say an eventual because the order does permit, after a remedies notice period, the debtors to take action. And that's permitted by this order. So I think this language that says any actions permitted by the interim order is broad. I was curious in paragraph three, on page 12 now, the use of the word aggregate appears in multiple places here, which, which we don't usually see. So 
for example, in the first sentence, to the extent of an, in an aggregate amount equal to any aggregate diminution in value. I'm curious if that has a specific meaning here or not. Um, Your Honor, I, I'm not sure, and I might I might defer to um, counsel for our lenders if, if they have a different view. I, my my read might be um, because there are three different facilities here. I don't want to guess, Your Honor. So I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know the that answer. That was my guess, but I don't know either. I would suggest that's the answer, Your Honor, just because we're throughout this aggregating three different loans, three different potential diminutions in value, collateral, all of that. Okay, then. I'll, I'll just say thank you. <laughs> in that respect, um, are any of the liens or super priority claims that are being granted as adequate protection providing any lender with a position on collateral that they didn't have before in some priority? Um, I believe the answer to that question is, is no. Um, that this, there's no priming. Um, well, I know there's sorry. With respect to the role. With respect to the role of what? So, Your Honor, if you go to Annex 2, again, Jennifer Hagel and Adam Barnes, see for the record. The lien priorities are set forth. So, as part of the bridge pre petition, there was a new money $100 million loan together with a $100 million roll up. With respect to that roll up, it crossed both facilities, PropCo and OpCo, on a junior basis with respect to certain collateral, which we were entitled to do under the existing agreements with required lenders. Some of the collateral, not all of the collateral. We're not moving for a dip facility or moving a roll-up into the post-petition, but to answer your specific question, that did afford on a pre-petition basis consensually through the required lenders access from PropCo to certain OpCo collateral and vice versa that we didn't Okay, and that happened all pre-petition. Correct. Okay, and sure. with the adequate protection liens and or claims then that are being provided, there's no additional cross-collateralization if you, well, there's no addition, they're not receiving additional collateral that they didn't have some position on at some point pre-bankruptcy. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. It's on page 20. Okay, this is the page that, that prompted the previous question about are all of the fees in the budget. But also, um, 
second sentence from the end says, payment of any amount set forth in this clause C shall not be subject to disgorgement. And this is being paid as adequate protection. And in the event that there are challenges, successful challenges, or for whatever reason the lenders are not otherwise subject to adequate or entitled to adequate protection, there needs to be a provision for disgorgement. Understood, Your Honor. I think we, we endeavored to address this issue with um, a new paragraph in 7F, which is on page 28 of the red line. And the intent of this language um, is to be, you know, a catch-all that provides in the event of a timely and successful challenge that the court will be able to grant any appropriate relief. So I, I, I think that language is intended to address that issue. addresses the challenge issue. I'm not sure it addresses fully the adequate protection issue as to diminution in value um, and ultimate entitlement to um, an adequate protection payment even if there's not a successful challenge. Understood, Your Honor. Um, perhaps we could work on um, revising this language, um, the debtors and counsel for the lenders. Yeah, and, and it might be as long as the lenders understand that it's subject to challenge. But again, I'm not yeah. deciding that there is a diminution at mm -hmm. this point in time. Understood. Perhaps so a, a... Give adequate protection in the event there is. Understood. Perhaps a, a potential language fix, we could make this sentence subject to that paragraph. If that would be, if that would be okay. the import of this on page 22 now. Is subordinating any intercompany lien among the debtors to all of the adequate protection liens? I'm not sure I understand, or I know I don't understand, 
what intercompany lead there might be and the import of the subordination vis-a-vis -vis perhaps creditors other than the lenders who have agreed to this. It's not a provision I know that I've seen before, maybe because there aren't normally intercompany liens. So one, do we know what they are? And two, what's the, again, what's the import vis-a-vis -vis parties who aren't in the room today? Um, to answer your question, Your Honor, I, I'm not sure I'm aware of what, what intercompany liens there, there are. I'm not sure if others in the room might, might know. Um, I will leave it for a committee to take a look at this provision and see if there is any possible impact on um, third parties from this. See, there have been changes made to paragraph seven. Let me take a look at those. Paragraph seven, the um, language in paragraph B.
which makes standing and the requisite authority subject in all respects to any agreement or applicable law which may limit or affect such entity's right or ability to do so. I assume is the reference to the Delaware's LLC statute. And why doesn't that language just come out and we can have the uh, language that's in what, paragraph, or maybe paragraph 39 needs to refer specifically back to paragraph 7? Because I think it needs to be crystal clear from day one that they're that I will not permit as a part of a lending an inability for the committee or any other party in interest to raise whatever challenges they want to raise within the time frame that they're permitted to do so. And that language makes it, um, I think it's unnecessary unless there's some other reason for the language, which I don't understand, and makes it confusing because it's not until multiple pages later that we see something which attempts to address this. And I don't want this language showing up in my next orders without being qualified, without um, something multiple pages later. So unless there's some other reason that I don't understand for that language, which would be a legitimate reason, I would like it taken out. You can contest standing other than that yeah. if there is a basis, but. So uh, I'm afraid if we scrap the language entirely, then I just have this concept of raising other standing issues, but I completely understand your concern with, you know, 7F or whenever it comes up later, it's maybe not making clear here, so we'll have to move that clarification along. I'll see what it looks like, but yes, let's move the qualification up where the language is. And even though I said maybe you can raise any other standing issue off the top, I can't think of what that would be. But perhaps there's something. Paragraph 8, limitations on use of cash collateral. Paragraph B, Roman or Romanet B, whatever. Romanette, little b.
preventing, hindering, impeding, or delaying any prepetition agents or any other prepetition secured parties enforcement or realization upon our exercise of rights. My concern here is that this does not permit the debtor to come before me during the remedies notice period and ask for relief. We can make that presentation to you. Or shall I? And in paragraph C, seeking to amend or modify any of the rights or interests granted to lenders under this interim order would suggest the committee can't negotiate for better or different um, treatment under this order. can't negotiate the terms of a final order. Or for that matter, the debtor can't chime in on that. And they have to be able to. Thank you. Paragraph 11, 506C claims, starts on 36, I'm looking at 37. You see the changes that have been made. The last sentence, yeah, the last sentence says, nothing contained in this interim order, in the final order, shall be deemed a consent. I don't know what the final order is going to provide, and I don't think it's really necessary to reference it here.
Okay, um, paragraph 16, termination events. Starts on page 39. Six on page forty, like four or five lines down. Makes a termination event any events of default under the prepetition bridge credit agreement. Okay, I don't know what those are, but okay, as long as they're just a termination event. But. It says the failure to pay pre-petition opco obligations and pre-petition propco obligations on a current basis. And that's, I think, where I had some question about if that's happening, why are we doing the whole adequate protection thing? So is that happening or is that not happening? That's why. Okay, thank you. That excluded. I would say take compliance out of those obligations. Yes, okay. Okay, well, that's why I was wondering, but as I said, I don't have as much time with these agreements as you do with these orders. change was made in the paragraph D on page 42. Thank you. Okay, we need to make a similar change in paragraph F then to reflect that I will permit anyone to bring any issue in front of me during the remedies notice period. So, you know, unless the court orders otherwise during the remedies notice period, or if no party in interest contests something, then upon the expiration and without further notice, the automatic stay, et cetera. Understood.
I, I think G also a parallel change in the parenthetical there, unless the debtors trying to I mean, sorry, unless the lenders are trying to restrict the debtors to contesting whether termination event occurs. But I think there needs to be a parallel change here as well, other than the right to contest during the remedies notice period. And again, I think consistent and parallel, paragraph 17B. Subject to the debtor's rights under paragraph 16E. And F, if there's no order, after the remedies notice period. I don't think it's after the termination date that stuff happens. It's after the remedies notice period without an order entered by the court. Then all the remedies can take place. Then you can sweep proceeds, apply proceeds, do whatever. But we need that period. You can stop use of cash collateral. That's fine. And I know that there's some permitted continuation, but in terms of exercising remedies, that needs to wait. Okay, I see the change in paragraph 20 credit bid, that's fine. Okay, then paragraph 22, the limitation of liability paragraph. Again, the only concern I have with this is the more forward-looking, um, which I see in the last sentence. Which, and actually, that's a, that's a declaration of a legal principle. You know, you have whatever, when you're exercising your remedies, you have whatever duties you have under state law. 
you have whatever rights you have under state law, but why am I declaring what they are in the absence of knowing what they are? <laughs> so I'm not sure I can, I'm, a, I'm okay with the rest of it, but that sentence I think goes too far. I understand, Your Honor. As I said, I think some of this language is geared toward circumstances where you have more environmental concerns. So I think the takeaway is understand the last sentence needs to come out. It is what it is. And then in general, you're uncomfortable with sort of forward-looking proclamations about control or lack mm -hmm. of control. All we're looking for is the acknowledgement that approving a budget in and of itself is not control. And I don't have a problem with that. And I don't think the... Um, this interim order itself is imposing any obligations or duties, I think, but I don't know how in the future things will unfold or how remedies will be exercised. Okay, that's fair, Your Honor. It's similar to paragraph 23. So long as the prepetition agents comply with their obligations under the loan documents, I don't know what those obligations are, um, shall not be, the prepetition secure party shall not in any way or manner be liable or responsible for the safekeeping of the collateral. Well, I don't know. If you exercise a remedy and you're holding on to the collateral and you're deciding what's going to be done with it, then you have whatever liability you would have under at least state law. I think clearly you do. So this, this I view as totally forward-looking and would have to do with the um, exercise of your remedies. And I, again, and I also don't know what the obligations are under the pre-petition documents. Okay, let us work on this, Your Honor. Okay. Paragraph 25, does this, maybe this is fixed by the we can do whatever remedy? Um, it's probably duplicative of something previous, but I think it certainly needs to be qualified to the whatever remedy is available. Might be it. But once we get it, once you fashion your remedy, the payments can come in. That makes sense. Just to clarify, Your Honor, do you want a specific cross reference there? Because I get concerned about once I start cross referencing the whole point of inserting the paragraph in dealing with the United States trustee was so, I think, we just govern the entire order and we aren't picking and choosing where we specifically insert it. Okay, don't cross-reference. I'm sure the committee will take a look at this as well. 
Okay, paragraph 33, priority of terms. I don't generally like provisions in one order that try to um, undo provisions in other orders. I think it's up to the parties to make sure they don't give me an order that's inconsistent with something I've already done. So, um, So certainly the order controls over the motion. The interim order, I would say, would not control over the final order. And the order would control over any agreements. But again, I don't want to have to worry about every order that I'm entering being subject to this order. The party shouldn't put in front of me something that's inconsistent. So, so this should not reference other orders entered by the court. And I think you do have larger protections already for a whole host of other orders, confirmation order and dismissal order and all that. So I'm not sure this serves any other purpose. Understood, Your Honor. And I see the changes made to survive over the interim order in 34. And I'll take those. Those are very specific. I know what we're looking at. That's okay. But not sort of generally anything that's put in front of me. Parties shouldn't have to think, oh, is this order final? Is it subject to some other order? Okay. Those are my changes, uh, my comments. Um, having gone through that, I can rule based on the declaration that was submitted, uh, admitted into evidence that the debtors have a need for the use of cash collateral. It's uh, reflected not only in the declaration but in the budget. Um, the um, assuming that the lenders are still comfortable lending on the uh, the terms as. Um, uh, I've suggested they need to be adjusted, then it is consensual use of cash collateral um, at this point with no objections to the use, subject, of course, to a final order, uh, assuming we get to one, and every party's ability to take a look at the interim order. Uh, but the use is uh, necessary. Uh, the uh, terms were negotiated at arm's length. There's no suggestion otherwise. And I will approve use of cash collateral um, uh, if I receive an order that's consistent with the dialogue we've been having. Thank you, Your Honor. 
Um, I, I didn't want to leave the podium without answering your earlier question about the budget. I do have a, an answer um, for you now. Um, so the, the um, uh, non-debtor professional fees, um, they are captured in the, um, in the other restructuring fees line item, and they are accrued and reflected in week five. So if, if you see there, there's a spike in week five, mm -hmm. um, and then you would see another spike in week 10 if we had a 10th week here. Um, and so that is where, where you can find those. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and then also, uh, thank you to Ms. Hagel for, for helping me out through, through the order. I thank you to Ms. Hagel. Um, with that, I'll, I'll cede the podium to um, Ms. Collins from Kirkland. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Lauren Collins of Kirkland and Ellis on behalf of the debtors. I will be taking us through agenda items 3, 4, and 10. Item number three on today's agenda is the debtor's joint administration motion filed at docket number two. The debtors in this case are comprised of nine affiliated entities. Uh, by this motion, the debtors seek entry of an order directing joint administration and procedural consolidation of the debtors chapter 11 cases. Uh, this will save time and money and ease the administrative burden on the court and all parties in interest. Uh, no party has objected to this motion. Unless your honor has any questions, the debtors respectfully request entry of the proposed order. Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to joint administration? I hear no one. I reviewed the motion. It's appropriate and I will approve it. Thank you, your honor. Uh, the next item on today's agenda is the debtors creditor matrix motion filed at docket number three and listed as item number four on the agenda. Uh, this morning, the debtors filed an amended proposed order reflecting comments from the United States States trustee at docket number 65. I do have a copy of the red line here, if you need it, please. Thank you. By this motion, um, the debtors seek entry of an interim order authorizing the debtors to file a consolidated creditor matrix instead of submitting a se separate mailing matrix for each debtor and to file a consolidated list of the debtors' top, tw top 20 secured creditors as, uh, as this relief will help ease the burden on the debtors' estates. Um, in addition, due to the need to protect the personally identifiable information of certain individuals, the debtors are requesting relief to redact the home addresses and email addresses of natural persons from certain publicly filed documents. Um, no party has objected to, the, to this motion. Um, unless your honor has any questions, the debtors respectfully request entry of the proposed order. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the creditor matrix motion? Can you come up so we can hear you? Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the U.S. Trustee, Your Honor, we, I only wanted to note that with res that the request that did change um, based on our comments, the debtors are no longer requesting to serve uh, parties by email. Thank you. That was the one um, thing that I noted as well. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. So thank you very much. Anyone else? Okay. Well, I did review the motion. The one concern I have has been addressed. So I will approve the uh, 
request as um, revised. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, again, Lauren Collins of Kirkland and Ellis for the record. Uh, the next item on the debtor's um, agenda is the utilities motion filed at docket number 10 and listed as number 10 on the agenda. Uh, the debtors obtain services from 24 utility providers for utilities such as gas, electricity, internet, and waste management. Uh, the complete list of utility providers is attached as Exhibit C to the motion. By this motion, the debtors seek entry of an interim order prohibiting the utility providers from cutting off service, establishing certain procedures for adequate assurance of future payments, and approving procedures for resolving adequate assurance requests. No party has objected to this motion. Unless Your Honor has any questions, the debtors respectfully request entry of the proposed order. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the utilities motion? I hear no one. I have reviewed it. Um, it is uh, appropriate and necessary to provide the adequate assurance so that the uh, uh, for utilities under Section 366 of the code. The only comment I have is with respect uh, with respect to the orders, paragraph 14, which again we'll see in many of the other orders, and it's. Uh, what I was just discussing in the, uh, in the dip, it says notwithstanding anything here, any payment made here is subject to the approved budget. I don't like to cross-reference. I'm assuming that everything is in the budget and that the debtor is not requesting relief that it doesn't have um, whatever permission it needs from its lenders and it's in the budget. So I would like that stricken. Understood, Your Honor. We can submit um, a revised form of order incorporating that comment. Thank you. Um, thank you, Your Honor. That concludes my pre presenting this afternoon. Um, and with that, I'll pass the podium off to my colleague, Mr. Pavlovich. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Chris Pavlovich of Kirkland and Ellis on behalf of the debtors. I'll be walking, Your Honor, through agendas number six, seven, nine, and ten. Your Honor, the first motion I will address is the cash management motion, item number six on the agenda, and filed at docket number five. Today, the debtors seek entry of an interim order authorizing the debtors to continue to operate their cash management system and maintain their existing bank accounts honor certain pre-petition and post-petition obligations, maintain existing business forms in the ordinary course, and continue to perform intercompany transactions consistent with historical practices. The debtor's cash management system consists of six bank accounts, all with Wells Fargo, which is an authorized depository under the UST guidelines. Because access to the cash management system is imperative to the, to the, <coughs> excuse me, Your Honor, to the debtor's business operations, any disruption to this cash management system could have an immediate and significant value-destructive effect on the debtor's estates to the detriment of all stakeholders. Accordingly, the debtors submit that the relief sought in the motion is necessary and appropriate under the circumstances. Prior to the filing, we received and incorporated comments from the lenders and the U.S. trustee, and no party has objected to this motion. Subject to removing the approved budget um, comment that you've made, Unless Your Honor has any other questions, the debtors respectfully request entry of the proposed order. 
Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to cash management? I hear no one. I, I have a question. The um, the schematic. Um, suggests that the intermediate holding company is the owner of the bank accounts. But the, the motion and maybe the, yeah, the list suggests otherwise. So I'm curious who owns the bank accounts? You're, you're correct, Your Honor. That's a, um, that should be the Packing Co. and the Farm Co. Or the, the Packing Co. LLC owns five of the six bank accounts and the Farm Co. owns the other. Um, so this schematic, we can re, um, submit a revised schematic that changes the MVP intermediate holdings to Packing Co. and Farm Co. Okay. respectively. I don't know that you need, you can do that if you like. I just want to make sure I understood um, which debtor owns which accounts. Yes, the... The Packing Co. owns five out of the six, except for Farm Co., which owns um, account number 6132 on the right side of the schematic, the top right. In paragraph 19, um, F, I'm not sure I understand. I don't think this cash, does a cash management motion doesn't create any liens? Uh, no, Your Honor. So I just, so what's the reference to F in here supposed to do? What's the import of that? I think it's just a reservation of um, the debtors and the, the prepetition agent's rights um, to make just to ensure that um, it's a, a catch-all um, reservation of rights, I believe, for the prepetition agents. Um, but we can strike that language if needed, barring any comments from the prepetition agents. I don't understand it in the context <laughs> of this this motion. So if the lenders have a reason for why it's in here, I'd like to hear that. Uh, Your Honor, Andrew's answering in case again. 
I just want to make sure we're I'm looking at the same thing. Is this paragraph 19? Paragraph 19F of the cash management motion. Right. So there are stipulations in the cash collateral order as to the pre-petition agent's liens. Mm -hmm. I think nothing in this order is meant to be an admission as to the validity of any other lien. I think that's effectively what Clause F is meant to get at. I think this language, unqualified by the first clause, is in the other orders. I have to double check. Um, but I, I guess I didn't understand the qualification in this motion because this motion doesn't grant anything, right? Right. Okay. I guess I'm not all that concerned about it, but I don't understand um, if it plays some role. And what you're telling me is it really doesn't. But it is different. This, the unqualified, the, the language other than that first clause is in the other orders. So sorry, just, Your Honor, just so I understand you, you're saying the opening clause carving out the liens for the pre-petition agents, that's not in the other similar. Correct. Essay. So we'll, we'll coordinate with the debtors and just make sure it's consistent across. The point is we as the pre-petition agents do not like the idea of some broad stipulation saying or some broad carve-out saying that the debtors are not stipulating as to the any liens because in the cash collateral order they are stipulating as to our liens. So. We'll put our heads together and make sure it's consistent and makes sense across each order. But Okay, but I don't want this language added to the other orders. This, none of the orders other than the cash collateral order, as I understand it, grant any liens to anybody, right? So while I hate these catch-all, this order doesn't do about, you know, these six things, because quite frankly it doesn't do anything other than what it does. But we're going to we're going to point out it doesn't do these six things, right? Okay, so um, uh, so nothing contained in this motion is intended or shall be construed or deemed to be other than with respect to the liens in favor of the prepetition lenders or prepetition agents an admission. So it suggests that it is an admission in this order somehow that this order does something that I don't think it does. Right. So I, I understand the court's concern. I think we can find a way to fix it. Okay. That won't offend you. Okay. So with the fix on that and the uh, paragraph 22, which we've already addressed, uh, I will approve the cash management uh, motion on an interim basis and conclude that it's necessary to avoid immediate and irreparable harm to permit the debtors to continue, continue uninterrupted to use their banking uh, facilities. Thank you, Your Honor. The next item on today's agenda is the, <coughs> is the debtor's wages motion. Item number seven on the agenda, filed the docket, docket number six. The debtors seek entry of an interim order authorizing but not directing the debtors to pay all pre-petition wages, salaries, commissions, and reimbursable expenses on account of the compensation and benefits and to continue administer, administering the compensation and benefits in the ordinary course of business, including 
payment of pre-petition obligations in an aggregate amount not to exceed 1.6 million on an interim basis. The debtor's employees are essential to the continued operation of the business. They directly employ on average in a calendar year around 8,000 employees. As of the petition date, the debtors have approximately 140 full-time employees and approximately 600 seasonal employees. The full-time employees include the debtors' executives, sales professionals, farm management specialists, and pack line management, among others. Most of the debtors' seasonal employees work during the harvest season, which lasts from approximately April through September. Seasonal employees generally either work at the farm at the debtors' farms or in the processing plant, where they thin and trim trees and pack the stone fruit. The debtors have shared the copy of the motion and the order with the lenders and the U.S. trustee, and they have had the opportunity to review the form, and no parties objected to this motion. Unless Your Honor has any further questions, um, the debtors respectfully request you enter this proposed order with the caveat that we will remove the approved budget language. Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the employee wages motion? I hear no one. I have reviewed the motion. The debtor has detailed um, uh, the various benefits it provides and uh, the cost attendant thereto. I will approve as requested uh, the motion on an interim basis, noting that the debtor has placed a cap on the um, amount to not exceed $1.6 million, and that this request for um, continuation of benefits programs does not implicate 503C of the code. Um, and I will find it necessary to avoid immediate and irreparable harm so the debtor's um, employee base can remain intact and so that employees can pay their own bills. Thank you, Your Honor. Next on the agenda is the critical vendor's motion, which is agenda number nine and filed at docket number nine. The debtors seek entry of an interim, interim order authorizing but not directing the debtors to pay in the ordinary course of business pre-petition amounts owing on, owing on account of critical vendor claims, an aggregate amount of up to six point, roughly six million, all of which is expected to be due and owing prior to the hearing to consider entry of a final order. The debtor's business depends on uninterrupted, uninterrupted flow of farming supplies, inventory, and other goods through its supply chain and distribution networks, including the processing and shipment of the debtor's stone fruit the debtor's business is heavy, heavily reliant on the receipt of such goods and materials because failure, failure to receive the raw materials necessary to grow the stone fruit would render the debtor's distribution and sales infrastructure irrelevant. Without these critical trade vendors, products and agreement to continue an ordinary course relationship, the debtors cannot operate a profitable, successful business. To be clear, the debtors are not seeking to pay all trade claims immediately but rather in the ordinary course with their normal accounts payable procedures as they become due and payable. The debtors do not believe that any of the vendors contemplated to be paid under this interim order are a party to any existing contract. The lenders in the U.S. Trustee have, have had the, <clears throat> the lenders in the U.S. Trustee's office have had the opportunity to review the form of the motion and the order and no party has objected to this motion. 
subject to the caveat that we will remove the approved budget language. Unless your honor has any questions, the debtors respectfully move, request that you enter the proposed interim order. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the critical vendor motion, which also includes packet claims, lien claims, 503B9 claims? I hear no one. Um, the, uh, the claims addressed by this motion are about $6 million. Can you give me any sense of what the trade claims are generally? Yeah, the overall trade claims outstanding is around $22.5 million. So I believe, if my math is correct, that's around a 25% um, that we're asking to pay on an interim basis. Thank you. reviewed the motion. I do have a question and a comment on the order, but um, I will approve, uh, subject to my comment, this uh, motion recognizing that the debtor has established with its lenders a process to determine uh, critical vendors. The debtors otherwise are subject to the PACA laws as everyone else is, and 503B9 claims uh, have a priority uh, under the code. Um, so I will approve it as necessary to avoid immediate and irreparable harm and to continue important relationships with various vendors. Um, question, the first question I have is on paragraph eight of the order. And I, the question I have is, is really in the proviso. Um, I have certainly no problem saying all, all undisputed obligations related to the outstanding or, orders are granted administrative expense priority in accordance with 503B1A of the Bankruptcy Code. But then it says provided, however, that the debtors can terminate any outstanding orders, which clearly they can do, prior to delivery, and any canceled orders are not afforded administrative priority. I think it needs to say they're not afforded administrative priority by virtue of this order. I'm not cutting off anybody who's not in front of me who wants to raise whatever they want to raise um, with respect to a claim they may have against the estate. Understood your order. We understood your honor. We can make that change to the order. Paragraph 12, I have a question. We have reservation of rights language in the first sentence. And then it says, the debtors do not concede that any claims satisfied pursuant to this interim order are valid. And the debtors expressly reserve our right to contest the extent validity perfection or seek the avoidance of liens and priority. And the implication of this is that the debtor's going to pay claims and then they're going to object to the claims they've paid? Yeah, I believe, Your Honor, this is 
relevant in the, in the scenario where maybe we have overpaid on an invoice or there's some discre discrepancy where more money than needed was sent out of the estates and it's, it's protecting that right for us to dispute that amount. Okay, well certainly I would think you certainly have the ability to dispute in the ordinary course. Okay, if that's what that goes to, that's fine then. Okay. Okay. Um, with that clarification and uh, the change that I would like to see in paragraph 8, as well as the uh, general claim we've, uh, change we've already discussed, um, I didn't, I guess I already did approve this. I've approved this. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah. Um, the last motion I have before you is the debtor's customer programs motion, which is item number, agenda number 11, and filed at docket number 11. The debtors seek entry of an interim order authorizing the debtors to maintain and administer their pre-petition customer programs and to honor pre-petition business practices thereto. The debtor's customer programs consist of discounts, credits, billing adjustments, and price accommodations, which include, among others, discounts based on the amount of produce a customer purchases, pricing concessions based on negotiating with the customers, and certain invoice adjustments to maintain customer satisfaction and loyalty if a product receives or if a customer receives damaged produce. Debtors seek the relief requested in the motion to assure their customers that the debtors have the ability to continue to respond to their needs, including when customers receive damaged and unsellable produce. This motion has been shared with the U.S. trustee and the lenders, and no party has objected to this motion. Unless your, your Honor has any questions, the debtors respectfully request entry of the proposed order, noting that we will take out the approved budget language. Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the customer programs motion? Yeah, I hear no one. I've reviewed it. I really view these types of motions, even though they're called customer program motions, as just routine business um, practices in terms of pricing and uh, uh, crediting customers appropriately. And I will uh, permit the debtor to continue with that practice. Thank you, Your Honor. That concedes my portion of today, and I will um, hand it over the, the podium over to my colleague, Trent Husky. Good afternoon, Your Honor. John Husky of Kirkland Ellis on behalf of the debtors. I will be taking you through the rest of the debtors agenda today. Getting nods that I am the end. Um, so the next item on today's agenda is item number five, which is the debtors application to retain Stretto as a claims and noticing agent pursuant to section 156C of the bankruptcy code. That was filed at docket number four. So in this case, we have more than 200 parties and in interests, and therefore, pursuant to Local Rule 2002-1F, there is a requirement to approve and appoint a claims and noticing agent. The debtor solicited, bleh, sorry, the debtor solicited proposals from at least two other court-appointed claims and noticing agents, but ultimately selected Stretto 
for having the most competitive price structure and for the experience in running Chapter 11 cases. Uh, in support of this application, the debtors have submitted declaration of Miss Cheryl Batantz, which, uh, which was attached to the application as Exhibit B. Um, unless uh, Your Honor has any questions, we uh, kindly uh, respectfully request for you to enter an order approving Stretto as claims and noticing agent. Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the retention of Stretto? We hear no one. I reviewed the motion. I do note that the debtor uh, complied with the procedure and uh, considered other uh, claims agents. I have no questions with respect to the form of order. I did review the declaration of Ms. Uh, Batons, and I will approve the uh, motion as requested. Thank you, Your Honor. So the next item on the agenda is item number eight, which is a debtor's tax motion, which was entered at docket number seven. By this motion, the debtors seek authority to remit and pay pre-petition taxes and fees. These taxes and fees will become payable during the pendency of these Chapter 11 cases. These taxes and fees include, among other things, franchise taxes, sales and use taxes, vehicle registration fees, property and water taxes, and regulatory taxes. Your Honor, we're seeking authority to pay up to $12,000 in tax liabilities that accrued and will become payable in the interim period um, on approval of the interim order. We had shared this motion with the U.S. Trustee's Office as well as Lenders Council and incorporated any comments that they had prior to filing. Um, we did note the language of the, the uh, approved budget language that is in the order at paragraph 11. We'll make sure to cut that. Unless Your Honor has any questions, we request that you enter the proposed interim order. Thank you. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the taxes motion? I hear no one. I reviewed it. The motion sets forth the different types of taxes that the uh, debtor incurs uh, in the ordinary course of its business. I note that the bulk are property and water taxes that are most likely um, to create liens with respect to the debtor's property. I also note the sales and use taxes, which are, are probably passed through. The um, the interim order sets a cap at $12,000 during this interim period, and I will approve it on that basis, um, noting that, again, it meets the requirements of Rule 6003. Thank you, Your Honor. And the last item on the debtor's agenda today is item number 12, which is a debtor's insurance motion, which has been entered at docket number 12. By this motion, the debtors are requesting an order authorizing them to continue to perform their obligations, pay their obligations under the current insurance policies, as well as authority to modify, supplement, renew, and enter into new insurance policies within the ordinary course of business. Pursuant to Section 1112B4C of the Bankruptcy Code, it is a requirement for the debtors within these Chapter 11 cases to maintain insurance coverage where failure to do so would pose a risk to the estates or to the public. In addition, the U.S. Trustee guidelines require the debtors to maintain certain insurance coverages. 
We had worked with the U.S. Trustee's Office and uh, Lenders Council, and we had incorporated any comments that they had prior to filing. Um, again, noting, I believe this time it is paragraph 10 of the order, the, the approved budget language. We'll make sure to cut that. Um, unless your honor has any questions, we request that you enter the proposed interim order. Does anyone wish to be heard with respect to the insurance motion? I hear no one. I've reviewed it. It is necessary for the debtors to continue to carry insurance, not only for the requirements of the United Office of the United States Trustee, but to protect the assets, um, the debtors' assets. Uh, it's a large amount, $2.8 million. It's going to, um, uh, is that the interim? Yes, yes, okay, Your Yes. Uh, the uh, interim amount, um, but the premiums are what they are. I noted that most of the policy terms just began, effective as of September 30th. So um, uh, the initial payments, I take it, are due. <laughs> and uh, uh, the debtor will be permitted to maintain its insurance and pay premiums as appropriate. Thank you, Your Honor. With that, that wraps up for the debtor's first day pleadings for today. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Then I will look for forms of order. When you upload um, items to the um, system, CMECF, please notify Chambers so that we look for them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judge. We're adjourned.